Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you want to Um... <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. Youngsters, and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that shoves its hand up the arse of a random episode of Top of the Pops and then wipes its hands down the front of its trousers. <laughs> I'm your host, Al Needham, and with me today are Sarah B. Hello. And David Stubbs. Hello, hello. Oh, my dear people, how are we? Tell me now of all the pop and interesting things that have occurred of late. Uh... Well, I went to see some uh, synth pop or synth... Did you know? Synth goth or such like from... The goths still have all the best pop music as far as I'm concerned. Um, mm. Yeah, from uh, France and Iceland. So there were oh, really? Some sort of wave. I don't know. There's all kinds of waves now. There's dark wave and cold wave and warm wave and haunted <laughs> wave. So Mongy wave. Some combination of those. None of them are heat wave, though. No. But there was, um, so it was Hunter and uh, Solvig Matildur from Iceland. Nice. Who uh, rambled very adorably in, um, in between, between songs in a very beguiling voice. And uh, I enjoyed the music, but I, uh, I could have listened to her talk for many hours. Ooh. David, how very you been, Ducker? Yeah, not too bad. A little bit of a cold, so um, if oh. I sound slightly roomy, um, then, um, <laughs> you know, pardon me. But, um, yeah, not be too bad. I took a tumble off my bike yesterday. Which I think, oh, <gasps> yeah, I heard about that. Oh, no. tell Facebook and everybody. It was all right, you know. As I said, you know, it's think once, think twice, think bike. And I thought once and I thought twice, but unfortunately on matters unrelated to the road right ahead of me. And, um, and I didn't Hang think on, you it. were on the bike though. So. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not you who's supposed to think twice. You, you should be thinking car and bus. I should, the bike I should have been thinking about is the bike coming towards me. I had to swerve to avoid it, hit some wet leads and went sort of, you know, base over tip. But um, oh yeah, you know, surprisingly, I mean, you know, I could have been. Why even, am I laughing? That's terrible. Because you're a terrible person. Yeah, that's that's true. Don't worry, it was it was a comedy. It was a comedy one. It was like Kenneth Collar falling off his bike or something like that. It was a comedy, um, <laughs> you know, um, tumble. So, um, yeah, you're all right to laugh, yeah. I mean, if I'd have been sort of, you know, stretched out. You in... should have a chopper, David. Um, a chopper, yeah. Yeah, that would, that would be all right, wouldn't it? Yeah. See, with choppers, it was harder to go over the handlebar. It was, it was yeah. trying to pull wheelies that fucked you up on a chopper. You, 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 you've sown a seed there, yeah. Yeah. A chopper. Yeah, that could really work, yeah. So, as you can tell, uh, because of the fucking adverts that have been on before, uh, we are in a new era of chart music. We're down with Great Big Owl. And, uh, yeah, I hope the adverts weren't too brutal on you. And if one of them was for Brexit, let me just say now, fuck Brexit, 
up the arse with a stick with a nail in it. Twice. Mm. A thrice. And of course, the other thing we're doing now is uh, instead of uh, giving the general public one big splurge of chart music, we've chopped it up a bit. Very exciting. I prefer to use the term fun-sized. <laughs> and you get in part one now and the other parts will be going out over the course of the week. So, yeah, new, new era, chaps. Fun-sized. Mm. The size of fun. Yes. Do you think that, you know, the way that things go with chocolate bars is that they... Mm make them a bit smaller yeah. and then they jack the price up and then they make them a bit smaller and they jack the price up. Do you think yeah. that one day all chocolate bars will be what used to be known as fun size? Mm. Or they'll yeah. be pills, won't they? Uh, but with loads of packaging. Yeah. yeah. It, it is true. It isn't just like, you know, I mean, one does grow twice the size of, you know, what the size one was when one was a child. But curly whirlies were definitely about a yard long, you know. You could climb up one to your, your bedroom you, you window. Could, when you could, not you? Or to your treehouse, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, they're, they're nothing, are they? No. When's the last time you had a curly whirly, though? They're, I mean, they're hard on your teeth as you uh, as you approach yes. middle age, aren't they? Yes, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, it's been, it's been a while. I've just looked at them at the confectionery counter with a disgust. Do you now? Well, you know, I just curl my lip in disdain at the uh, diminution of them. Do you think, though, we were robbed... With curly whirlies because there were massive holes in them. That is true, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. you can say that about Crunchy, though, as well, can you? Crunchy, the best yeah. chocolate bar, bar none, mm. which has millions, millions of holes in there. Yeah. Like Aero as well. It's just a cod, isn't it? Brexit now. <laughs> I suppose this really should be a, a new listener episode because we're uh, we're expecting a few people to cock a tab at us. And uh, I just thought, you know what? Fuck that. I ain't going to explain what we do. I've already said, you know, we do exactly what we say on the tin. We take a random episode of Top of the Box and we break that shit down, baby. Yeah, they'll, they'll catch up. We've got a, a swathe of back catalogue you can uh, peruse at at your will. So, yeah, let's carry on. Fuck it. Mm -hmm. But before we do that very thing, we need to bend the knee once more to the real pop-crazed youngsters who have shoved a handful of dollar down our G-string this month. And those people are in the $5 category. Thea Bolstad, Michael Pryor, Robin, Jade Bowyer, Barry Davis, Ian M. Spillane, Padraig Reader, Martin Baker, Nathan Ratcliffe, Andy Mullen, Jim McNellis, Ali Lowe, Stuart Wharf, Des O'Clockran, Suleiman Banyan, Big Chimp, Barnaby Davis, <laughs> Don Whiskerando, Mike Innes, Mike Ratford, Jamie Brown, Stephen Devine, Ari Stevens, and Arlene Finnegan. Oh, we fucking love you. You do. Great names, great people. Yeah, and in the $3 department, we have John Lynch, Mike Innes, Martin Young, Faceless Man, Neil Comfort, John Nichols, Michelle B, Chris Gilbert, Andy Ockler, George Schilling, Matt D, Chris Stanley, Neil Ponton, Mark Harrison, and Artie Mortar. Oh, baby, you want we... And you can have this lap dance here for free. Oh, I'd wipe me fanny on those trousers all day long if I had one. And they had some. A lot of pop crazy youngsters upgraded this month. That's why we've got such a big amount of people. Because they know know what's coming. And they prepared. Bless them. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So don't forget, pop crazy youngsters. We're now chunkified and advertorialist. But... If you want the full advert-free episode on the day it comes out, just slip $5 down this G-string right here. You can have it all, baby. 
and the $3 Patreon people, they get it on a Wednesday. Oh, we're not letting them down. Mm -mm -mm. So, if you've been dithering about supporting chart music, now is the time to climb off the fence and chuck us some pence. Yeah, go on, money isn't real anyway. No. (laughs) And of course, if you're down with the Patreon posse, you can vote on the brand new chart music top ten. Are we ready, babies? Yeah. Hit the music. We've said goodbye to Sarah B and Rakim, Chicken Stephen, and Bummers Like Duran Duran, which means four up, two down, two new entries, and a re-entry. A new entry at number 10 for Working Class Youth of Newcastle. Down five places from number four to number nine, Pig Wanker General. (laughs) Shame. No change at number eight for here comes Jism. That's a hardy one. A re-entry at number seven for Taylor Parks' 20 Romantic Moments. Last week's number seven... This week's number six, Bummer Dog. Oh. Last week's number one drops all the way down to number five, Quo Waddy Wadda. <laughs> it's a one-place jump for this week's number four, Dave D, Creeper, Twat and Cunt. Yes. Into the top three, and this week's highest new entry is in at number three, B.A. Cunterson. Could it be next week's number one? Up from number three to number two for Lesbian Door Factory, which means... Britain's number one. He's back at the top from number two to number one, Jeff Sex. There is some justice. Fucking yes. There is some justice. Jeff Sex is back where he belongs with a Christmas single, uh, probably called Stuck in Your Chimney. Ooh. Yeah, good top ten, that is. Uh, the, the new entries, Working Class Youth of Newcastle. What what are they sounding like? I think they're posh lads from Buckinghamshire. Yeah, I think that's almost certainly the case, yeah. Definitely, yeah. Trying to be ironic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, quite sort of worthy and... Uh, mm. yes. yeah, Being wry about their privilege. Yeah, and of course, B.A. Cunterson yeah. is... He's just B.A. Cunterson, isn't he? The original. Yeah. So if you're not down with Patreon yet, you know what to do. You take them little fingers over to the keyboard and you tip and you tap patreon.com slash chartmusic and you donate a bit of cash right down this G-string. I wonder mm. how many people are going to do that just to... Just to get some idea yeah. of what the fuck we've just been on about. Yeah. If you knew, you'll yeah. learn. Yeah, yeah. Or it's you might exciting. just go, oh, I, I can't stand oh, yeah. that bloke's voice. I'm turning it off now. But, eh, you know, thanks for the download anyway. <laughs> We're definitely in the deep end of that metaphor, aren't we? <laughs> so we finished our Critics' Choice series last episode, and it was lovely, wasn't it? Yeah. We really were treated to some outstanding episodes of Top of the Pops, but um, I think it's now for a bit of thin gruel to balance out the diet. So (laughs) we're going back, pop craze youngsters, to the wrong half of the 80s because this episode takes us all the way back to December the 17th, 1987. Oh, dear. We've walked this way before, haven't we, Sarah? We have, yeah. The journey wasn't all that scenic, was it? Mm, 
Not, not especially. Even, even I, who uh, I think there is something to love in every eighty for me. Mm. But this is uh, it does it does test one. It's like uh, it's like the kind of difficult adolescence of the eighties, mm. when you know they're just being a complete prick, and it's like, how the fuck did I? How am I going to deal with you without just throwing you out on your ass? Yeah. So yeah, we're having another pick at the scab of nineteen eighty-seven here. Not a vintage year for pop music. I, I content Mm. but you know let's give it another go let's see what comes out this time i mean the biggest thing that happened to the charts in 1987 uh, had nothing to do with the bands or music or anything like that it was that cd singles were finally registered in chart returns and uh by this point at the end of the year we can really detect the influence can't we because this Mm. episode is uh it's it's adulterated isn't it and not in a good way it's like when everyone's mum got on Facebook. Yeah. It's like someone has a theory. Someone I know has got a theory about Brexit and why that's happened. It's like, oh, it's because, uh, you know, it's all, the, all the boomers got on Facebook and, and started uh, started having their brains massaged by, <laughs> by the Russians. It's a little bit like that. You know, it's like, oh, everyone's mum who's got a CD player in their car. I don't know, you could get CD players in your car by then. Yeah, so, sort of, if you had a... You know, an expensive car. That's, well, yeah. I must have been a late adopter to CDs. I don't think I really got stuck going on CDs till about 88 or even 89. Jesus. Um, wow. I'm not sure I remember who was it, what, Michael Rod smearing one of them with, um, you know, ketchup. Jam, like yeah. Talking, yeah, or jam, whatever it was. Um, and, you know, on the side, that, yeah. Yeah, it's not that side you have to worry about. It's the other bloody side, you know, that kind of... Yeah. I think 80, yeah, 88, 89, I, I, I started getting into CDs and... I must admit, I you know at the time I really kind of appreciated them, you know, because you got more space and what have you, and and I never really I'm not one of these vinyl busts because I never cared for vinyl. Mm. I played the fuck out of vinyl. I was a hard, talk about hard user, and I mean they're told, oh you've got to change your stylus every eighty sides. Well, that'd be like once a bloody day. Yeah. I, mean, you know, I can't afford that. So all my all my vinyl, like towards the end, you know, it's like a sort of you know the stylus is like chalk, sort of grinding out, you know, these kind of end of side one tracks yeah. and um they're, you know they're barely, barely listenable so um yeah and of course you know the old bit of blue tack and the two pence on the on the needle as well to uh, you know i just thought very very primitive indeed so i've never really got on board with this whole kind of vinyl mania i didn't have a cd player until 1994 yeah no, well that's serious. and only because it came with a music center i bought that my mate mm. did a massive discount on because he worked at dixon's yeah I, I didn't give a fuck about cds because by this time the only thing i was pretty much buying apart from me hip-hop were which you couldn't really get on cd anyway was um second-hand record shop uh stuff mm. So, yeah, didn't give a fuck about CDs. Gave slightly a bit of a fuck when I had one and then went back to not giving a fuck about them. Yeah. As discussed before, I have got all my vinyl out, even though I haven't got a record player at the minute. I've got the the wherewithal to play CDs, but they're all in bags. I don't I don't give a fuck about yeah, them. Yeah, I mean, mine's in no fit state to be played anyway because I was such a kind of, you know, I used to let the cats sort of scratch them and stuff like that, you know, like um, all these LPs stacked up. I think a whole bunch of them got stolen from a garage once, wherever. Or oh, man. I left about 600 um, 12 inches with a, with a friend and then never bothered to get them back. Uh, yeah, you know, oh. I just, I don't know, I'm just in, indifferent to material things, you know, I mean, call me call me spiritual, perhaps. Yeah. Call me a twat, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was still very much into cassettes at this yeah. point, so... Um... Yeah, I don't know when I got. I don't know when I got CDs. I'm sure I was suspicious of yeah. them at first. What are these shiny bastards? Nothing, nothing turns on them or anything. Yeah. What the fuck? So uh, yeah, and and also didn't have a lot of money. So don't know when I got a CD player. But I had an excellent CD Walkman um, when they came out. Uh, that was so good. I wish I hadn't got yeah. rid of that. Oh, it was yeah. great. 
Um, you had to kind of carry it around like a like a tray, though, like yes. a tray of food. You know, you had to because otherwise it get upset. You couldn't like hold it at your side. So actually, it wasn't better than a cassette Walkman, which is quite sort of hardy and and robust. Yeah, I had one of those in the late nineties, and I was instead of holding it like a tray, I'd have to lift my bag up and tuck it under my arm, <laughs> which completely defeated the object of straps. Yeah. Early CD Walkmans were terrible. I mean, they're just, you know, like yeah. say, you know, if you're sort of jolted, you know, like half a millimetre or whatever, you know, they'd sort of pop around all over the place like a prawn on a hot plate. Yeah, it was it was more a CD stand man, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, really, to be honest, it was, yeah. Well, it's all right. If you're sitting down, you just hold it hold it in your lap on the, on the bus or the tube yeah, or whatever. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. but yeah. Yeah, it's there to serve us. We're not there to serve it. Mm. But anyway, I've yeah, I mean, who was buying CDs in 1987? They were the... Uh, I don't know the people people with money millionaires. I suppose <laughs> millionaires. <laughs> yeah, well it is there's quite a lot of millionaires music in this episode I would say. All those formats, all these new formats and there were lots of them over the years. It was always the first sort of tester was always like Dire Straits Brothers in Arms wasn't it? That was always yes. the one that would like you know they'd be the first in all these various uh, you know mini discs and all these kind of things and laser discs yeah. and various formats uh, which have all gone to the Betamax grave. 1987, though, music-wise, chart-wise, it was, mm. it's not been a good year, has it? I mean, it's, it's a sort of an in-between time in lots of ways. I mean, it's been a steady decline since, I think, the early 80s. You had, like, all of these sort of pop, post, post-punk pop entrists, you know, like your Simple Minds and Scruti Politi and the Associates mm. and ABC, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of which would have sounded fucking mint on CDs, wouldn't they? Yeah, 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 absolutely. But then there's a sudden sort of collapse of all of that in about 83, 84. And then mm. by now, it's just really before things like Acid House is about to sort of you know, transform pop and dance music, etc., etc. It's weird. There's a sort of glaze that's settled over mm. everything. It's almost like instead of Phil Spector's wall of sound, it's like Phil Spector's wall of pork pie jelly or something. You know, you just, <laughs> whether it's like, it's, everything's sort of boxy and it's got a sort of gelled feel about it, which oddly enough is the mm. way that like people wore their suits and they wore their hair or whatever. You know, it's an exact yes. parallel of the way everything was produced. And it's kind of, you know, it's suffocating at times. You know, everything has got this kind of unwanted sheen to it. You know, this this sort of like three inch thick slickness and you know it, whether it's you know it doesn't matter what it is whether it's heavy metal or whether it's sort of neo soul or whatever it's it's all the same i remember like it was just oppressive mm. and i suppose it started in, in the earlier 80s when john martin who made all those fabulous albums from the sort of mid early to mid 70s by 1980 81 phil collins has got his snares into him and he starts producing john martin and it's just all sounds come you know su su studio ish you know it's got that kind of Again, that big, yeah. boxy, sneery sort of feeling. It's just like, fuck off. Mm. Yeah, it is It is mostly like that. But like I said, I mean, there is there is always something good, isn't there? There is no one year that is just like, that year is no. 100% toilet, you know. Mm. I've got to admit a fondness for um, Tango in the Night, which came out this year. Right. Fleetwood Max. Extremely shiny, outrageously shiny and sort of punchy album. Mm. Is that the one with Everywhere on? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, like, those singles were, like, my, you know, my introduction to, to them. And uh, although I'm afraid I think Christine McVeigh has one of the blandest voices in, in popular music, I mean, especially compared to Stevie Nicks. Stevie Nicks was 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 basically recovering from all the coke and just did a, a bit on this album. But mm. um, but it's still, it's so great. And, yeah, those singles I'm really, really fond of. Mm. Um, also, also, Faith, George Michael's Faith, one of my most beloved albums. That's this year. Both of those are, um, you know, they have they have the shiny sheen on them, but they've also got all sorts of bonkers ideas and, um, 
you know, just loads of imagination and charm. Yeah. There was still some of that here and there, despite the general kind of in-between time malaise, mm. nothing, kind of nothing much going on, nothing much to recommend it. And it's it's after some exciting stuff and waiting for the kind of, you know, bins full of ecstasy to come across from the States and mm. hit <laughs> hit this country. Yeah. And then stuff was going to get more interesting. And then yeah. stone roses to become mystifyingly massive as well. <laughs> another story. This period is a, it's an era that time's pretty much forgot, hasn't it? I mean, mm. when people go on 80s nights, uh, this isn't the 80s that they Ooh, have a no. night dedicated to, either musically yeah. or dress-wise. I mean, it's interesting, though, because Pricey, I think, uh, did that, so, I don't know what it was called, something like a kind of minicab cub club night and I think yeah. the idea was all those tracks that you only ever hear at about four or five in the morning mm. either coming very late back from a club or very early to, to get to an airport or something like that yeah and you know it's the sort of graveyard slot into which a lot of these and a lot of 87 stuff you know gets in that and sometimes although I was kind of complaining about that sort of production it sometimes has a sort of weird headiness that reminds you of coming back from you know being in a minicab very late at night or at first thing in the morning that weird sort of headiness of like being kind of very tired or whatever and the you know, and the sort of neon lights flashing by you know, along the kind of, you know, um, A63 or whatever, you know. Um, it's, so you're basically um, saying watching this episode's like, you know, you you just come home from yeah. a club and you can't get to sleep. And you just put on BBC4 and it's like, oh, this yeah. shit's on. Oh, fuck it. Yeah. I can't, I can't be bothered to reach over for the remote. Mm, yeah, so it has a sort of strange, I don't know, almost sort of narcotic effect or whatever. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if, if Pricey was here, there's there's things that we're going to hear. And I think that Pricey would be kind of praising to the skies, I suspect, possibly on that minicab basis. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know that I like to watch these episodes as if they were on telly. And like, so I like the surprise of, of what, what's coming yeah, up. Trying to make it 1987 again. Yeah, yeah, and I do my hair and, you know, <laughs> I think I might take that up, actually, for future episodes, is before yeah. I watch it, I'll watch a half-hour episode of Tomorrow's World, the next time I watch Up the Pops, and that's one thing. <laughs> also, I might hire a very old man to sit in a sort of adjacent armchair. Yes. To replace my dear old granddad yeah. and make him murmur seven days jankers every, uh, <laughs> every, every ten minutes. I could do that for you now, David. <laughs> Um, but yeah, this one, I was just like, oh, fucking hell. Oh, fucking hell. Oh. And I was like, yeah, this is genuinely, this is a, a real wasteland of an episode. And and then and then it got better. So I don't think, is there an episode of Top of the Pops where the, it's completely, there's nothing to recommend it at all? Oh, wow. I don't think there is. I don't think there's a year that, I mean, that would, that would be nonsense. You know, it's just not how these things work. But it is, yeah. I mean, 1987, no. sort of a fallow year, but... Still with some good shit in it. Mm, let's get stuck in, eh, kids? Yeah. Radio One News. So, what's in the news this week? Well, unemployment in the UK falls under the three million mark, he said, putting his hand to his chin and stroking it. The digging of the Channel Tunnel has just begun this week. The Nasdaq Stock Exchange shuts down for a day when a squirrel gnaws through a telephone line. (laughs) The captain of the Herald of Free Enterprise loses his appeal to clear himself for being responsible for the ferry disaster. The BBC have announced that they are dropping Miami Vice from its New Year schedule in the wake of the Hungerford massacre. Thanet Council allow a sex shop in Margate to open late for Christmas. 
I am no lover of sex shops, and if I had my way, I would close them altogether, said Councillor John Brench. But as other shops will be opening late, we have to let this one follow suit. We can't have the meat without the gravy. <laughs> Man United have bought Steve Bruce from Norwich for £800,000. Mick Hucknall has been signed up by ITV to present a daytime vegetarian cookery show, which sadly doesn't <laughs> happen. The Pet Shop Boys have started legal proceedings against Jonathan King for claiming in his son column that It's a Sin is a complete rip-off of Wild World by Cat Stevens, and King has responded by covering the latter, set to the music of the former. But the big news this week is that Smash Hits has just released the results of their 1987 readers poll. Shall we play a game? Best group. I give you a clue, David, it's not the young gods. No. (laughs) The the Pogues. Duran Duran. Five star. Oh, cool, yeah. Oh, hooray. Best male singer. Mm. Oh, it's probably Michael Jackson, isn't it? George Michael. Oh, Terence Trent Darby. Michael Jackson. Oh, oh yeah. God. You see, I thought they'd be a bit little... Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, he was... He, to be fair to him, he, 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 could, he could carry a tune. I thought it was too obvious. Best female singer? Mm. Annie Lennox. <laughs> no, are they, are they <laughs> that weird? standby answer for all yeah, of these. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Madonna? Madonna. Madonna. Madonna? Yeah. She... she Madonna can sing. She's not the greatest singer, but she can sing. She can sing while spinning around a pole on top of a nun. So I'd, I'd say that's you know most promising new act. Ooh. Rick Astley. Ooh. It's a group. Ooh. Wet, wet, wet. I was going to say wet, wet, wet. Oh, I was actually just going to say, say wet, wet, wet. Fast enough, David. I was just going to say. I was just best single. Ooh. It was a number one. Um, Is it never going to give you up? Never going to give you up by Rick Astley. Hey! Best LP? Yeah. Mm. I'm going to have to say Rick Astley's Bad. Greatest Hits. Bad. Bad by Michael Jackson. I was just going to say, yeah, I thought... Yeah, yeah, yeah I was just going to do this. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, you, say, you, you know, yeah. Also voted as the worst LP. Uh, oh, yeah, used to get a lot of that. Worst single. Mm. Another number one. Uh, was it some dodgy bit of Stock Aitken Waterman? Is it also never going to give you up? No, they like Rick Astley, don't they? Uh, Star Trekking <sighs> by The Firm. <laughs> oh, yeah. I had, I had that. I had that. I probably still have it somewhere. It's it's very it's terrible. Unbelievable. Number two, pump up the volume by Mars. Oh, you know what I mean. They probably yeah. They thought they probably thought all that sampling was just like horribly gimmicky. You know, like mm. well, they weren't. They just weren't ready for it yet. You know, they weren't ready. Worst group, Ooh. Mars. By that logic, Hugh and or Cry. The Beastie Boys. No. <laughs> you know, I thought it all narrative about how smash hits. It was this kind of repository of kind of wit and irony and like, mm. you know, and a sort of like, you know, the, the music press was rather kind of grey and sort of patronising and sluggish by comparison. What a bunch of clueless idiots. <laughs> well, the readership anyway. Yeah. Oh, well. Most fanciable male. Morton Harkett. Hmm. Terence Trent Darby. 
Morton. Morton. Michael Jackson. Philip Schofield. Oh, <laughs> Philip fucking Schofield. <laughs> oh, he's all right. I mean, you know, if it was, if it was, uh, if it was two a.m. and you were tired, you know. Mm. Most fanciable female. <sighs> Kylie. Had Kylie, okay, had Kylie discovered sex at this point? When was um, Better the Devil You Know? Oh, okay, had she, she hadn't been given the gift of sex by uh, Michael, Michael Hutchins. Madonna? Madonna. Oh, Madonna. Best DJ. <laughs> oh, God. It's not going to be Spinderella, um, although it should be. Uh, Mike Reed. Uh, Pat Sharp. Mike Smith. Oh, Mike Smith? Oh. Bloody hell. And the best TV show? Well, of course, it's Top of the Top Pops. Top of the Pops. Top of the Pops. Yeah, of course. Yeah, there you go. Of course. Still number one. I know. Fucking hell, man. Mm. Smash Hits has gone well off the boil, hasn't it? Mm. No justice for Morton. Yeah, it's Pop is in decline. Mm. Possibly permanent decline. Pop as we knew it. Smash Hits type Pop is uh, yeah. in decline, I think. The best years of Pop are always when you could take the cover of uh, The Enemy, you could take mm. the cover of Smash Hits, and you could take whoever's on it and swap them round, and no one would be surprised. Yeah, yeah. So, on the cover of The Enemy this week, Crush. On the cover of Smash Hits, Rick Astley and Philip Schofield with the Smash Hits Award stuff. The number one LP in the UK at the moment is That's What I Call Music 10. Hit 7 is number 2, and Whenever You Need Somebody by Rick Astley is number 3. Over in America, the number one single is Faith by George Michael, and the number one LP is the original soundtrack for Dirty Dancing. So, me dears, what were we doing in December of 1987? Kind of drawing a blank, to be honest, on uh, what I was doing when I was nine. Mm. It's one of those, uh, it's a weird in-between age. You know, it's not like a it's like a very formative year. What pets did you have, Sarah? Because you know, you you mark your life out by animal, don't you? You do. I think I was uh, probably had a very elderly guinea pig, and was uh, was uh, because I'd read The Witches by Roald Dahl, I really wanted a pet snake, so I ended up with a pet snake. Snakes are brilliant, but uh, don't mm. get one because they're also quite difficult to look after, and uh, sometimes they insist on. Um, they, if they if they don't uh, if they don't like what you give them to eat, then they'll yeah. just go fuck you. Then you know, like right. cats and how picky cats are. Snakes are worse. They'll just they'll just die. They'll just be like, no, Man. I I disdain all of this. I <laughs> I welcome death. So yeah, so don't get them. This was in Halifax. Uh yeah, sort of sort of Halifax Huddersfield kind of thing. Yeah, there's a snake shop in Halifax then. Yeah, you could get snakes there. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. I had because I had two, and the one that I had later on, I got sent to my house. What? He just turned up. The postman brought him because you can put them in it. Yeah, you can. Uh, again, don't just don't just stick a snake in a jiffy bag. But they like to be in little confined. You know, no, one of them long tubes, <laughs> like a poster tube. Yeah, it was. Uh, you know, you put them in a sort of uh, like in a, in a pillowcase, and you put them in a box with with holes in it, and they're quite they're quite happy. So I got a you know special delivery of a of a snake. It was brilliant. It's quite surreal. The only time I was in the world of cartoons, really, and uh, do you remember yeah. Wizard and Chips? You know, <laughs> he had to yes. a snake in his in his chum, yeah, was... um, and the various adventures. And then the snake was like about the size of a boa constrictor or something like that in this particular yeah. instance. But uh, you know, quite a cheery, uh, you know, cheery sort, slippy. Um, <laughs> I didn't really, especially not up north. You know, I didn't really think that. that uh, 
there were snake shops and the opportunities to avail of reptiles in this particular way. But, yeah, you can. Oh, there was one. Well, there was a horrible one. You shouldn't. You see, you shouldn't get them from from shops. You know, you should get them from breeders. But uh, there was like a ridiculous sort of pet peto mart uh, somewhere somewhere in the region, and they had a crocodile. And they snakes had a, snakes are us. But they had a they had a crocodile and they had <laughs> sharks and things. It's like who's going to come in here and buy this shark? Shark. They had a little shark in there. Yeah. Because sharks are amazing. Because when they're small, they just look like mini sharks. They're perfectly in proportion. So it's like, mm. is that small or am I far away or what the fuck? It's a shark. <laughs> so uh, yeah, and it's like, who's who's going to buy that? I suppose the same people who are buying CDs at this point. You know, yes, millionaires. Yeah, you know that's going down the toilet after a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Basically, yeah. All of television history is contained in the box of delights. I've climbed up Nelson's column once before. These are small. And put it down in front of Backpuss. I'm Julia Rayside. Join me and my guests as we dip into our favourite TV memories. Suppose mustn't hesitate bashing her head like this. You can't tell me what to do. You ain't my mother. I love it when a plan comes together. Come and tell us what yours are too. We've all been told we can't discuss nominations. It's a bit of car air. Shut up with a novel on. I think I like you, Lovejoy. Find us on Twitter at Box Delights Pod and listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com music wise we know you're into michael jackson at this time sarah anything else floating in your boat i was yeah well um yeah there's, there's all it's interesting to look back on these years and go oh, all these things came out that i wasn't uh, wasn't really into at the time but got into later like uh, mm. you know um uh, music for the masses came out this year uh, also frank's mm. wild years by tom waits um which yeah. i you know subsequently uh, came to love um uh, ooh, uh, pet shop boys I was definitely into Pet Shop Boys yeah. at the time. It's only their second album, actually, and it's so it's so great. It's so complete, mm. and and every every track is just a perfectly turned pop tune that no one else would have thought to do. Well, I was still at college, and I was still loving it. Um, but I, I've got a feeling that I missed this episode of Top of the Pops because I probably would have been working at the Adelphi uh, Bingo Hall in Bullwall. Uh, where I was a change giver and a runner around uh, old women who shouted "Eeyah!" <laughs> when they got a full house or a, or a line. Really hateful job. Basically had to wear this horrible tight black waistcoat and even tighter black stapes trousers. Getting my ass mauled by assorted randy old women. Uh, and there was one in particular. She must have been about. She must have been pushing ninety. And every time I had to go past her, she'd just grab me and pull me onto her knee. Ooh. And um, I used to get really flustered about this because it's like, you know, this she's an old woman. She, you know, she's Ooh. got 
fragile hips and everything. Mm. Yes. And I just said, I'm a bit too big for you to be doing this, aren't I? And she just looked at me and just said, I've had bigger boys than you, ducker. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. You, you were objectified, weren't you? you were a, I was. You were a bunny boy. I was just a bit of meat in a bit of stay yeah. press. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, 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 I didn't get the chance to be the bingo caller because that was a very prestigious job. And that was Bagsy by this lad called Mark. Yeah. It was all hair sprayed up. He, he mm. fancied himself as a bit of a Gary Davis sort. Yeah. And he, you know, used to bang on that it wasn't his real job. He was a DJ and he was making remix tapes. And uh, some of the other lads said, oh, well, God, bring your stuff in then. Let's hear it. And uh, it got to the point where he'd play the fucking music every at the end of every shift. Mm. And all he'd done is just basically got a tape-to-tape player and he did everything really stuttery. So the intro to um, Never Gonna Give You Up would last about 30 minutes because it was just, no, 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 no. It was just that, man. He just did your fucking head in. So, uh, uh, round about this time, I'd be, you know, serving the needs of the elderly. Yeah, um, yeah. Thinking about, you know, where I'm going on to afterwards, because as soon as the shift finished, I would have probably gone into town to see my mates from college, mm. really hoping that we'd go to the garage, uh, which was a, a, a little club in Nottingham, which, unbeknownst to me at the time, was one of the crucibles of Acid House, because Graham Park had a... I had a regular set on Thursday nights upstairs, but I wasn't interested in that. I stayed downstairs because, you know, every now and again they'd play hip-hop, you know, a bit of Beastie Boys or Run DMC. Uh, but but knowing in my heart of hearts that everyone else had insisted we'd go to Rock City because there was more girls there. So I'd, I'd be sitting there having to listen to fucking Love Cats and R.E.M. and all that stuff that I hated simply because it was just forced down my throat every Thursday night. So... Mm. So, yeah, that, that, that was me. Oh, so um, you should have been the bingo caller, shouldn't you? But they obviously decided they needed you out there on the floor being groped. Yes. Yeah, yeah that was that, way, my place was on the streets the way, of bingo. It's the way of the world, isn't it? I, I eventually did become a bingo caller, but that was in another town right. and another decade. Mm. But um, I'm only one of two people on chart music who have worked as a bingo caller, and I'll just leave that hanging <laughs> in the air. Have a think. Have a think about who else... In short music, could have been a bingo caller. Well, Taylor, obviously. Yes, Taylor would be a fucking Ooh. amazing bingo Ooh. caller. <laughs> Ringing in the cheer. Like nihilist bingo. I could, I could see that taking <laughs> off in these, in these times, actually. David. Yes, 1987, yeah, December. I make no bones about it. I was absolutely on top of the world. Yes. Um, I was a staff writer at Melody Maker. I just turned 25. 18 months earlier, I kind of given up any prospect of kind of working in this kind of industry, and I'd become a trainee chartered accountant. Oh, man. I was absolutely shy. You know, my heart wasn't in it. My brain definitely wasn't in it. Um, and I've been doing this miserable course about three months. And then it was actually, I don't know if a guy called Frank Owen, who worked at Melody Maker. Simon Reynolds was already there. But Frank Owen rang up and said, um, do you fancy doing a bit of um, stuff with Melody Maker? And I went, yes. And um, on the basis, on the strength of a single live review, I, I resigned forthwith from um, Arthur Young, the um, the accountancy firm. And um, and they accepted my resignation and uh, advised me that I was probably doing the right thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and then it sort of kicked off from there. What was the review, David? James Blood Ulmer. Right. Um, live in Camden, and um, in Camden somewhere. And, um, and I remember I coined the phrase, the wider the flares, the badder the funk. 
So oh, nice. <laughs> little aphorism there. Um, there was where he was sport, sporting some pretty uh, luminous strides, it has to be said. Um, but yeah, and that was it. And that's uh, very daring for nineteen eighty six. So I got twenty quid, which is you know uh, about twenty quid is what you get for the same thing today. Um, yes, and, if uh, you look at it. yeah, that's right. But they, you know, pe- people were sort of melting away. Melody Maker had gone through this phase of trying to be and it did it right at the end as well a thing no one in the world wants is an inky smash hits if people want smash mm-hmm. hits they'll buy smash hits people yes. buy music press they want some ink you know they want writing they want it to be the music press but but for some reason you know there was it, it was a, it, and, and and sales were beginning to sort of tanker it because it was a stupid idea you know to sort of try and pop it up in that way um but people involved in that, that, that idea, I think, was just kind of melting away because I think pop music, Frank, was kind of melting away at this point. And it was all getting a bit redundant and there was all this stuff that features like that, the Patsy Kensit corner and stuff. And it was all. But various writers came on at the same time. So Frank Owen, who's specialised in hip hop, Simon Reynolds, of course, who everything. Um, the mm. Stud Brothers, um, you know, um, Chris Roberts, um, various people like that, myself. And it coincided with the time in which the music was changing, and there was definitely a shift. Things like rock had been a dirty word in the early 80s. We talked about rockism, yeah. as if rock was kind of a pejorative thing. And I was down with all of that, you know, the enemy and all that. I was, I was a great, I was a little pop ironist to me, white socks and all that, you know, um, mm. sort of prancing around to ABC. But clearly, you know, you know what happened now, the dialectical wheel shifts or whatever. And then by 86, 87, Rock, you know, you need. It was the return of rock, as Simon Reynolds put it. Huskadoo and um, the Merry Chain and um, mm. all these other groups. ARK and the Young Gods, of course. Um, but um, you know, the sounds were getting kind of big and expansive, and pop was just become this kind of sort of diminished postmodern in theory thing. I'll talk a little bit about more about that. But it was just an absolutely. And it was just an absolutely fantastic life. It was, you know, it was like the beginning of 10 years of just decadence. Well, take us through a day in your life round about this time, David. A day would start about seven in the morning. I'd kind of wake up. <gasps> um, where am I? And I'd be like, you're in your own room, you idiot. And, oh, yeah, yeah. So you need your home. <laughs> okay, and then, and then we've got like 3,000 words of deathless prose due by midday. Ugh. So fucking hell, get onto the typewriter, clacking away a sheet. It's all sheets, web, you know, because um, this mm. was before word processor computer and all that kind of thing so you know you just clack out three thousand words interview with whoever but whole service or whatever and then you know that by 11 o'clock then you'd have to sort of like go out get the train from south london into um high hoban where melody maker was at the time mm. whack it on the table at five to midday you know yeah. and um Oh, you know, catch your breath back, whatever. You know, 10 minutes later, the editor comes out. Lovely work again, David. Well done. Oh, yes, yes, nothing. And um, and then about five past midday, it was kind of, anyone fancy a pint? And um, <laughs> yeah, and then you just stroll down to um, um, the Aporto on the corner there, um, nice. which was only open, unfortunately, it was only open until, do you remember the time when pubs didn't open in the afternoon? Yeah. The Dark so, Ages. Yeah, the Dark Ages. So what happens is you have quite a few... Obviously, and then about 3 o'clock, you think, well, what are we going to do till 5.30? So we had to get some um, carry-outs, uh, swan oh. lager, mm. rancid stuff, just to sort of see us through. Then, of course, uh, you know, 5.29 and 59 seconds, you know, hammering at the door again, and all the way through again. And then next morning, 7 o'clock, you know, it was... It was Mostly like that, really. It wow. was, you know, we, we we felt like we owned Soho. We were in um, High Hoban. Yeah. 
opposite the Shaftesbury Theatre there. And so we were just prowled around Soho. It was like, you know, a very different Soho from the one oh, yes. the parody of Soho we got today. Yeah, it was more um, Charlie Endel's Soho. It was. Um, and, you know, all these like little haunts that, you know, like the Apollo, you know, bar for pasta and stuff like that, um, which might, I think, be the only place that's actually left of the old Soho. I was walking around there recently and it's mm. just... God knows what's happened to the place, but um, yeah. but you know we felt like we felt like we owned it. We felt like kings of the world. We felt like we were in the absolutely right job. A lot of people might be thinking, "Oh, this could be a stepping stone to writing for the Sunday Times." Fuck that! Who wants to write for the Sunday? Mm. You know, this is the job. This is the place. What we're doing right now, we felt we were just absolutely at the absolute leading edge of everything, of culture or whatever. You know, we really, you know, we were kind of fairly sort of humble and wouldn't say boo to a goose about it, but secretly we were kind of thought we were absolutely the dog. Bollocks! The absolute goats gonads. We really did, <laughs> um, and yeah, and, and we you know we did feel like we you know we adopted a group of young gods, and we did feel like you know we were ourselves young gods, and like you know mm-hmm. there were certain groups, and and I think a lot of our music criticism was informed by you know by these particular things. You know, we'd sort of slag things off because they weren't the young gods. Essentially, was the, right. the subtext of a lot of what I was writing. Um, you know, basically, we had a you know a very sort of strict agenda about where music ought to be and anything that um, was going off in some other direction or whatever you know there was none of this kind of oh well it is what it is spirit or not my cup of tea it was no no it was uh, we crushed it you know like steamrollers and we we were pretty you know also pretty fearsome in the pub you know people like me and jonesy whatever you know i'd like to think myself that when he's nice you know people always a bit of an intimidating atmosphere or whatever you know i was probably the one doing a lot of the intimidating frankly you know (laughs) people weren't there for months before they even dared pluck up the courage to talk to me you know and then when they did they found out they in fact in reality are just a big sponge cuddly teddy bear exactly exactly david tell us about how you actually got into music writing though because you you know what's your background well um i was oxford with simon reynolds right um and towards the end there, um, being and this other guy, Paul Oldfield, um, and another guy, Chris Scott, co-founded a magazine called Monitor. I think... Um, was it a um, magazine or was it a fanzine? It was... It was somewhere in between. Right. It, was a ra- it was a kind of rather better produced... A fagazine. Yes, exactly, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, you know, we'd write sort of you know, reviews and think pieces and what have you and manifesto type things mine was simon reynolds i think had the most developed voice i was writing and i remember writing a thing about profile of a fake group called william wilson or whatever and going into sort of detail about this imaginary group with pool daft nonsense like that but i did do one article about melody maker sort of deconstructing some right. um survey they'd done of like indie scene or whatever and particular bands that they recommended i just sort of savagely deconstructed it line by line word by word or whatever and pretty much implied that if melanie maker were ever thinking of offering me a job well they were just going to have a whistle i wouldn't demean myself i'd rather work in chartered accountancy than, than, <laughs> either, than have anything than even truck with this nonsense um and it was only a few weeks later that they did say well so you want to do some work for melanie maker yes please yeah. um, <laughs> so there you go uh, yes. just like neil all you had to do yep. to get a job on yep. melody maker was to slag off melody maker Correct. Fucking and then, hell, you know, who knew? Exactly. Inside the tent, pissing out, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And it just went went on from there. And it all happened pretty quickly. I remember thinking at the time, I remember like eight, eight months, when am I going to be a staff writer? And then, mm. and then finally, finally, I think it was about April, um, Brian Case, the eminent jazz writer, who was still probably shouldn't really have been a melody maker at that point. He was at the ancient age of 48. Good Lord. And then finally moved on to time out. And then, you know, I went, you know. Um, and then, of course, I roosted there for years. 
years and people like Price in Taylor Parts, you know, were just saying, when is that, when is that old fucker going to go yeah. off and write for the Sunday Times or something, you know? <laughs> Not a chance. <laughs> Looks like a bloody chartered accountant. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, that was sorry. But no, absolutely glorious times. But it was all about rot and I just felt that everything was happening at a sort of subterranean level. Everything that was interesting, whether it was hip-hop, Eric B and Rakim and all that kind of stuff. Um, sort of guitar, noisy music, big black, and all that kind of stuff. And the difference was. Tell us then, the Eric B and Rakim story, David. Come on. Oh, oh, yeah, yes. In the um, yeah. Did you just put up an amazing photo of Eric B and Rakim on your on your Facebook feed the other day? Tell, please did, tell yeah. the story to the pop crazy youngsters. Um, it was the photographer Richard Bellier who was kind of accompanying me on the job, and he took this superb photo of them in the back of. A London cab. Now, the reason we were back in the back of London cab was that all gold we... medallions up to fuck. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it was like you know Mark Spitzes. You know, they were Mark yes, Spitzes up. Were. Um, <laughs> um, absolutely, they were. And um, but they were supposed to think that they were running very, very late and they're due over in Amsterdam. So, well, the only way I can do it is just get in the cab to Heathrow. You'll just have to do the interview in the cab with them. So this great photo of them sort of looking disdainfully out the window and then in, in those little fold-up seats opposite, there's Richard Bellier sort of snapping away and there's me sort of trying to elicit an interview about them. I mean, the fact that, like, when we got into the cab to join them, Eric Beard already got his feet up on the opposite seat oh, did suggest man. that they didn't, <laughs> weren't expecting us to be joining them, you know. So yeah. thanks, press officer, doing your liaising job as ever. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, and it was, it, it was a kind of, you know, it was an all right interview, I suppose. It was... They were just sort of quite taken with, you know, Eric B was just loved. all. It was saw a little Ford Escort. I said, man, that is cute. What kind of car is that? Yeah. I don't know anything about cars, but I can tell a Ford Escort. Said, Ford Escort. I want me a Ford Escort. And he went, we also went past the Natural History Museum and he said, like, man, that is, that is some mansion. I think I'd like to buy that mansion. You, know? <laughs> you have to talk to the Natural History Museum people about that. <laughs> um, I did have, I mean, this is the sad thing, and my daughter was, you know, when I showed the photo, I did have a briefcase you, with yeah, me. You showed the photo to your daughter, yeah, expecting to I know. get some props. And I was getting some serious props, but then when she realised that I'd taken a briefcase to a hip-hop <laughs> interview, those props collapsed yeah. in a heap, like the kind of great high wind of 1987. <laughs> it was a weird, like, hangover from, I don't know, my kind of natty smart days from the early 80s, but I lost it. I lost it shortly afterwards, but I was briefcase wanker, unfortunately. Well, me dears, let us rip open a packing case or two and pull out the issue of Melody Maker from this week, shall we? Yes. Good skills. So, yeah, the one I've got here is Melody Maker of December the 12th, 1987. Yep. On the cover, Sinead O'Connor. Mm-hmm. In the news, a week-long festival organised by Action Against AIDS has been announced for May of next year, culminating in a worldwide satellite-linked mega-gig. For contractual reasons, no acts have been named so far, but the organisers claim they will be along the lines of the Elton Johns and George Michaels of the world. Sinead O'Connor has been rushed to hospital in Liverpool after getting into a fight with a bouncer at the Adelphi Hotel after being refused entry to the hotel disco for wearing jeans. Her bassist, former Smith Andy Rourke, got chinned as well. CBS have announced that they'll be releasing the next Terence Trent Derby single, Sign Your Name, in six different formats at the end of the month. A 7-inch, a 7-inch with a limited edition picture bag, a 12-inch, a 12-inch picture disc, a 10-inch single remixed by Lee Scratch Perret, 
and a CD single. CBS are also releasing the first four CD discs with actual pictures on them this month. George Michael's Faith, Michael Jackson's Bad, Bruce Springsteen's Tunnel of Love and Introducing the Hardline, according to Terence Trent Darby. Oh, man, what what times we live in. (laughs) Terence Trent Darby, Mr. 1987. Mm. I think the only one of those things in that format would be the Lee Scratch Perry 10-inch and and the more mixed the better. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, but what a thrill to be able to see pictures of your fave pop act through that little portal in the CD player as it whizzes around 20 times a second. (laughs) Mel Smith and Kim Wilde's video for Rocking Around the Christmas Tree has been censored by the BBC due to viewer complaints after it was premiered on Wogan with the offending scene Mel Smith inside a fridge being cut out. Mm. You know, just in case people still have those really old 60s fridges that you had to lock. Ah. Yeah. Oh, I see, yeah. I thought it was some sort of obscene thing about inserting himself in the butter or something. So. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> no. And yeah. um, Peter Stringfellow has banned paparazzi from his club in an attempt to coax back celebrities who have been staying away. Mm. Terrible. Mm. Interviews this week. Well, Crush, this week's enemy cover stars, are given three quarters of a page, but Caroline Sullivan can't get much out of them, bar the fact that they're not that keen on publicity. There aren't any recognisable house stars at the moment because no one is consistently good at it, and they really like them trainers with the Mercedes logo on them. Mm. Sinead O'Connor's interview is given two pages, most of which is taken up by the Stubb brothers going on about how much they adore her and how brilliant she is. Yes. Simon Reynolds gets possibly the last ever interview with Dinosaur before they change their name to Dinosaur Junior and discovers that it's all because of a group consisting of former members of Quicksilver Messenger Service, Country Joe and the Fish and Jefferson Airplane, who've called themselves the Dinosaurs, who have threatened to take them to court. Hmm. I thought that was me. No, because David Stubbs has a chat with Annie Anxiety Bandez and wangs on about how great her latest LP, Giacomo, is. You're right. You're quite right. Do you remember that, yeah, David? Yeah, no, you're quite right. I've, got my, I've just got my scrapbook in front of me, my trusty scrapbook. But um... Oh, you don't believe me, do you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. No, but no, I do believe you. I do believe you. I've got, you're right. I'm wrong. Um, but I did, hey. basically, I did interview Dinosaur around that time myself, and it wasn't the name Dinosaur. Um it was the era of like bands who were a bit kind of sort of sleepy eyed, sort of a bit sort of catatonic and you know, lost in their own sort of psychedelic blur and consequently Boring as fuck. Absolutely boring as fuck. Hang on, I just I've got it here. It's just one extra I've talked to Jay Mascus. And it's just like I'm just trying to get anything. I just asked them, What do you do with yourself? Where do you derive the will to live? We sit around all day and watch T V. Do you drink? No. You do drugs? <laughs> no. Are you miserable? <laughs> no. And that's some of the choice of quotes. Matt Smith nips down to an intersection in South London and interviews the justified agents of Moo Moo as they deface an advertising billboard for the new statesman. 
David, weren't you there for that? Ah, no, I was I was there for a different one. Um, so obviously they tried to do this kind of thing before. With me, it was 1991, and it was defacing ah. an advert, a billboard um, for the Times about the Gulf War. And it said, the Gulf, the right. coverage, the action, the fact. This was the first Gulf War, so this is about 1991. Yeah. And they got arrested by plainclothes police officers um, because what they did, they um, painted out the GU and put a K in its, you know, the KLF, you see. Um, right. Yeah. So I had to accompany to them, to, you know, to the Nick, and wait around while Good they were Lord. kind of given a stern ticking off. Well, this time they talk about their forthcoming single "Downtown," which samples the Petula Clark record and claims that this time they've got permission off Tony Hatch. Ah. Yeah. David Stubbs takes the train to Newcastle to have a chat with Chris and Simon Donald, the creators of Viz, and gets them to explain their obsession with shaking Stevens and why they have such a downer on old women. Yep. Do you remember that, David? I do remember it very well, yeah. Yeah, it was all right. At that point, they were selling um, about 60,000 copies an issue. Mm. The next time I interviewed them, they were selling a million copies. Mm. Um, But yeah, the first time I just went up, yeah, went up to Newcastle, their little sort of office come sort of living space. Uh, Simon Donald gave me a lift back to the um, station and all that. And um, yeah, you know, they were all right. But I just got the impression that, that... that everything they were saying was kind of semi sort of made up. Um, and at one point I did that trick of um, leaving the um, tape recorder on while I went to the toilet to see if they said anything sort of interesting behind my back. Mm. And, and like, all, all I'd said was, he looks a bit like Butch Wilkins, doesn't he? He looks a bit like Butch Wilkins. <laughs> I bet he gets that a lot, but he does. Definitely Butch Wilkins. <laughs> and that was it. Oh, not much use. <laughs> And Control Zone, the music spot section, gets yeah. dead excited about the BBC releasing its sound effects collection on CD and poses the question, portable CD players, yuppie toy or musician's tool? <laughs> in the singles column this week, the Stud Brothers are man in the page and their single of the week, or at least the first one they review, is Blind Hearts by Zymox which was already reviewed two weeks ago, but it's a quiet week for new releases, and they think you have to own a copy, as it sounds like Aha covering The Cure. Heart are described as rock's second greatest soul band after U2. Welcome to 1987, everyone. Mm. But their latest single, There's the Girls, is not up to snuff. Meanwhile, the Paul Hardcastle remix of Never Never Gonna Give You Up is completely uncommented on as they take up the space to forward the opinion that Barry White is actually a virgin. <laughs> Last night I dreamed that Somebody Loved Me, the final single by the Smiths, is also completely ignored as they say to Morrissey, Farewell then, Creeper, Lord of the Train Spotters, Emperor of the Inconsequential, Potentant of the Impotent. We salute you. Now sod off, Jesse. Oh dear, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. On the Turning Away by Pink Floyd is compared to a dildo advertised in the Sunday Sport for being hollow, extra thick and unrealistic. <laughs> Megadeth's Wake Up Dead reminds the reviews of Crockett's theme by Jan Hammer. Pack jammed with the party posse by Stock Aitken and Waterman is better than Roadblock because it's got scratching in it. And Stutter Rap by Morris Minor and the Majors is described as three East End twats take the piss out of the Beastie Boys exactly a year too late. Mm. In the LP section, the lead review, or at least the one with a photo, is Huevos by Meat Puppets. 
Paul Mathieu appreciates the fact that they're awkward bastards who will have a go at anything and have created a strange pleasure. However, it's a coat down for the two-ring circus by Eurasia. Andy Darling accuses remixer Little Louis Vega of stretching what amounted to very little in the first place into a macabre wake. <laughs> it's a thumbs up for Bucky Fellini by The Dead Milkman, Heavens by Big Dipper, Body Beat by Yargo, Skinny and Proud by The Skinny Boys, and Rubber Legs, the reissue of The Stooges' 1974 mini-LP. But Chris Roberts describes The Dam's The Light at the End of the Tunnel as an appallingly packaged best-of double album, which contains all six of the songs they did that were any good. And the final rip-off by Monty Python gives the Stud Brothers the opportunity to point out that they've become everything they used to despise and are no better than a surreal Terry and June. Ooh. 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 Yes, Sk- Skinny Boys, remember them? Yes, yeah, Skinny and Proud. Yeah, what yeah. time is it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're just basically the Fat Boys, but flip-versed, weren't they? <laughs> In the gig guide... Well, David could have seen John Cale at Dingwalls, the Sugar Cubes at the Town and Country Club, Simply Red and Hue and Cry at Brixton Academy, The Cure at Wembley Arena, The Man from Del Monte, Pete Shelley and Frank Sidebottom at London Central Polytechnic, or Buster Blood Vessels All-Stars and Sex Bitch Goddess at Dingwalls, but <laughs> probably didn't. I certainly didn't. No, I always say, but probably didn't at the end. I got that off Simon. What's he getting out there, David? You're not a not a gig goer. Yeah, I mean it, it, it's true. Uh, frankly, I didn't really make much of a secret of it. I didn't like gigs. I didn't really see the point of it. You know, you just go along to some, you know, like Dingwalls or whatever, or um, break the ball, and you get this. You know, you just get this slightly inferior version of what you're hearing on on the album. It's uh, you know, you, there was smoking, of course, back then. So you sort of come home stinking of fag ash, lager spilt down your neck. Sticky floors, herded around by sort of horrible churlish bouncers into these kind of like dark barns, and I just thought the whole you know trying to pretend that this is some sort of wonderful rock and roll experience when in fact you're just being treated like mm. shit. You know, I wasn't having it. Also, you know, I like to have a glass of wine when I go out, and frankly, Dingwalls didn't 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 have good sellers, put it that way. <laughs> okay. um, and um, and I say this with pride, actually. I was staff writer at Melody Maker in 1991. I went from January to May of that year without going to a single gig. Fucking and, hell. Um, yeah. you know, some people would call that dereliction, pricey, for example. I call it taking a stand. <laughs> but we didn't have shushing problems, as we said back in those days. Yeah. Um, you know, butthole surfers, um, big black, you know, there was nobody. Shh, shh. Um, uh, do, you, do you think it's a shushing problem so much as a selfish twat's talking problem yeah. oh yeah but it's the fact that gigs are at such a volume that people can be heard i mean you know this is the thing maybe it's the kind of gigs that used to go to but you know when um gibby haynes or whatever is blasting away on his kind of you know loud on his loud hailer and um whatever you know just doing these low-end ass quaky kind of bass riffs i mean no there's no option just but to listen to it um so i do i mean it is an interesting i mean i think that there's probably been an increase in selfishness and solipsism whatever definitely and i think that that's true and maybe people are less used to that the idea of giving sort of passive undivided attention also but yeah. i wonder if it's to do with like the set levels now at gigs or whatever i don't know 
Yeah. Yeah, it's oh, it's such a fucker. Sorry, this is like you as soon as you mentioned the shooting I was just like mm. yeah. because I can't yeah, I I still I still go to gigs and I I go back and forth on whether or not it's worth it. And then I'll go to one yeah. of course that's brilliant. And I'll go of course it is. Mm. I'm not done with this yet. Yeah. But yeah, people talk people yakking all the yeah. way through. Yeah. Fucking, the thing is, I used to get annoyed about people taking pictures and blah blah blah. And now I don't at all because at least they're engaging mm. with. And you know, I've done it. I have done it myself. At least they are engaging with with the work mm. as opposed to just yammering about their own bullshit yeah. and their own stupid lives as if it's just as if as if the entertainment is just there to provide background. Yeah, it makes me so angry. Definitely, it makes me so angry. But the, the anger is the thing that is worse mm. than once that is set off, and then there's the whole thing of like. Do I say something? Do I not say something? Mm. I kind of occasionally I've won by um, it's easy when it's blokes to be honest. I'll go up and go hi and be and and make a lovely face at them and go, do you mind? And <laughs> mm. often they'll go oh 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 oh. But I've seen them do that and then five minutes later. No. <laughs> gigs, gigs are like the new cinema, aren't they? In oh yeah. I mean it's it's you know it's now become a shushy thing. I, I agree. It's a real problem and it's something I, I avoid it. But I'm really not going to the kind of gigs where that's likely to happen. So I'll either go to some sort of massive mega sort of you know, Megadome Funk thing or whatever, or like Janelle Monáe or something like that, all these kind of tiny little improv gigs where there's only about 20-odd people and everyone is just sort of schooled enough to sort of, you know, pay attention. Taylor could have nipped out to see Alison Moyer at the NEC, to Pow at the Birmingham Powerhouse, the UK subs at the Mermaid, Spaceman 3 at the Sensateria, or the Sugar Cubes at Birmingham Burberries. Sarah could have availed herself of Budget at Sheffield University, the wedding present at Leeds Polytechnic, then Jericho at Leeds University, in excess supported by Sinead O'Connor at Sheffield City Hall, or the Mac lads at Leeds Duchess of York. <laughs> or you'd have loved them as a nine-year-old, Sarah. Uh, Beer and chips and gravy. No, no, I didn't. I Sweaty was, better. I was faintly aware of them, and, and I didn't I didn't get it at all. <laughs> Neil could have checked out the Bundu boys at Warwick University, Gary Glitter and Westworld at Wolverhampton Civic Hall, or John Otway and Wild Willie Barrett at Coventry Polly. Al could have investigated Dio and Warlock at the Royal Concert Hall, the Fatback Band at Rock City, Dinosaurs at Russell's, or the Supremes at the Mansfield Leisure Centre. Mm. Oh, man. Poor Supremes. Yeah, to be in the same sentence as Mansfield. And Simon would have had to have made do with Lindisfarne at Cardiff St David's Hall and Terence Trent Derby at Newport Centre. Not many listings for Wales at the minute in Melody Maker. Mm. In the letters page, well, Paul Lester of Sheffield thinks Melody Maker is dead good and their coverage is a return to the things that count the most. Sex, lust, jokes, fucking, fighting, dancing, flirty, flighty, possessed obsessions, godlike genius. Oh, David, that's just you in a sentence, isn't it? <laughs> oh, very much so. Uh, there was really much... We, we were too drunk to lust, even, quite frankly. Um, <laughs> so it was to fight. I mean, there was, no, there was a lot of, like, verbal joshing and sort of mm. sparring, whatever, you know, and I think there's... You know, and people like me and Alan Jones or whatever were in the chair at the Aporto, you know, scaring off like outsiders. They were no match for our untamed wit, you know. Mm. Yes. But, yeah, good, good, you know, nice buttering up there, Paul. And, uh, you know, where you get a job in the um, music press. (laughs) (laughs) You do make it sound like a kind of fantasy club, you know, loose new Bloomsbury Mm. set kind of deal. 
Was it really? Mm. Was it really like that? I mean, as I've mentioned before, yeah, there was there was definitely a lot of drinking, and that's where the real editorial meetings were. Yes, it was in the pub, like all um, good magazines. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, beyond that, um, I mean, you know, there was there was no problem. There was the, the drug taking and what have you. We, there was a sort of there was a strong element of decadence about it, I suppose. And maybe what Paul is driving at is that there was a kind of Melanie Maker was more in a sort of getting back to the sort of maybe the sort of debauched freer spirit of like rock as opposed to enemy which was still a bit kind of you know sort of white socks socialist and all that kind of stuff and mm. kind of a bit buttoned up in that respect and that melody maker represented this kind of riotous um you know riotous alternative to all of that uh yeah Kay Williams of Surrey has responded to the cries of vengeance offered by Alarm fans in the wake of a recent coatdown of their new LP, Eye of the Hurricane, by Andy Darling. He advises them that if they want folk with real bollocks, they should investigate the men they couldn't hang who are coming to save the world. Later known as the men they couldn't sell. (laughs) This week's hate figure is John Wilde, who slagged off the new David Sylvian LP Secrets of the Beehive last week. David Sterling Frizzell of Northampton claims that Wilde has pressed his head up the arse of condescension, Mm. while Nigel Warwick of Salisbury accuses him of going off in a whirl of pathetic, damp convulsions whenever he's confronted by something he can't understand, and to quote a guest of honour of Portsmouth, not since the Hungerford Massacre have I witnessed such stupidity. Tasteful. Mm. Mm. Pepsi Zanusse laments the general shittiness of music in late 1987 and claims that the last hope for it is the Rhythm Sisters. Tom Crean of London wants Melody Maker to have an index section so he can find the reviews he wants to read. And Paula Valda of Eastbourne wants to know what happened to Bobby G of Books Fizz. (laughs) Meanwhile... Little Denise Timpler is incandescent with rage at Caroline Sullivan's review of a Frank Sidebottom gig, assuming that Sullivan is an advocator of all the po-faced shitty goth bands that Melody Maker constantly champions. (laughs) They were our bread and butter, the goth bands. Mm. Frank, like the Smiths, has humour, she claims. Try listening to him before commentating on him. And yes, Frank does get groupies. I know, because my friend is one. <laughs> wow. Well, to be honest, if, if Caroline missed the humour in Frank's sidebottom, she missed pretty much everything. Frank's sidebottom groupies, man. Do, do they give him papier-mâché head? Oh. Oh. Very good. And the quo armor describe the melody maker sheep as assholes and fucking wankers for daring to suggest that the only person who wants to hear about the band nowadays are pick botha if any of <laughs> listen to this david if any of you lot got the chance to join quo you'd be there like shit off a chrome shovel come on david deny that one if you dare well, probably not at the time. Come on, you would know... love to be sat in a hotel room in Dusseldorf having a group polish with your heroes. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it, with, with age, it does appeal a little bit more. Yeah, so perhaps I would be that small piece of excellent sort of, you know, making off with alacrity from that shovel these mm. days. But at the time, I think I would have spurned the offer, definitely. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, uh, yeah. there's no centre spread this week. It's been given over to a massive advert for heroin. 
and how it makes you flog your mum's wedding ring. Mm. Well. Yeah. Screws you up. 56 pages, 50p. I never knew there was so much in it. Yeah. Got to ask, David, was it a really good time to enter the, the music journalism scene, sort of 1986, 1987? Because to me, it looks like such a good training ground because the bands are so fucking shit and boring mm. that your lot have to wang on endlessly to, to fill pages. Well, there was an element of that. I mean, you, you there was a lot of crap around, mm. um, and that gave you a chance to, um, you know, really kind of castigate this stuff and really kind of develop those kind of critical muscles, you mm. know, the muscles of derision and what have you, know. But at the same time, a lot of new things were coming through that were really kind of expansive. You know, My Bloody Valentine, you know, and people like Still Around Like the Cocktails and Mary Chen, whatever, Sugar Cues or Pixies a bit later on. Mm. And you could really develop this kind of like willfully pretentious like praise to the skies type, you know, lyrical version of um, music journalism. So you had these two opposites. You had the kind of derision and you had this kind of wonderfully kind of inflated take on what was going on. I mean, this thing about this, I mean, again, it's pre-internet. So I did a feature on Big Black around this time mm. and it, um, it was about, it would have been about 3,000 words and it only contained one fact Um, And that was buried in the middle somewhere. And it just said, Big Black are about to split up because their basis is going to law school. You know, it it was, was, you know, and these days, because of Wikipedia, I think everything has to be sort of like, be based around this kind of skeleton of fact, you know, and it gets kind of fleshed out with a certain amount of elaboration or whatever. But then, I mean, it was just 3,000 words of just conversation, Mm. adjectival frenzy, description, immersion or whatever. You know, you just approach it in a different way. I mean, there weren't really facts just weren't that important. It was more about kind of simulating the experience of, of Big Black in lots of different ways. Mm. So you could write in a very different way. Nowadays, everybody just falls back on, you know, sort of press releases and stuff or some sort of, you know, factual agenda or what's going on, whatever. And it's, you know, and it's, it's, it's tepid I don't by comparison, I think. It's kind of more appropriate, isn't it, to write about music and evoke the experience of mm. music, I suppose. Yes, absolutely. But I think, as I say, there was less emphasis in any case on facts because facts actually weren't easy to come by. I mean, you, all you really had was clippings of, like, you know, previous interviews and things like that. And, and quite a lot of the time, you know, that was pretty thin and a bit tenuous or whatever and possibly even fabricated or completely inaccurate. So mm. writing just had a sort of different emphasis. Mm. Maybe this is how we deal. Maybe we need to get back to this in in these post-truth times. You know, we just need to go full post-fact and just embrace (laughs) it. And then, you know, it's only music anyway. No one can, you know, it's fine. It's just people to ask about. It's not, yeah, maybe we can lead the way. I mean, it really used to annoy me later on in career when, you know, when people would come sort of really drawn. They, they think if you got a fact wrong, then somehow that made your whole opinion wrong. You know, I think you'll find it was on a Tuesday, not a Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> Who cares? You know, you know, the idea that there's some sort of correlation between facts and truth, you know. And the truth of the matter is that, like, Big Black were an absolutely essential group, you know, at the time. I mean, if I'd have said that Steve Albini was the drummer or whatever, I mean, that wouldn't have altered all material. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, uh, I'm going to row back on it now. I think it's probably it, it. It does kind of it does it does nibble away at your credibility somewhat if you if you just can't <laughs> be asked would, to get yes. anything that right. That particular one, yeah, <laughs> that particular one would. But um, but no, what it is, it didn't really kind of you know there, there was there was all kinds of factual stuff you know that I could have kind of gone into or referred to or made them kind of talk about. And I just think that would have been 
very, very dull. But excellent experience. Mm. Uh, Just you hit the ground running, don't you? And it was a good time. I mean, it's very similar to me. Mm. My first magazine gig was for a a Mega Drive magazine. Mm. And I was just chucked in at the deep end and Mm. had to write all the fucking tips and and the maps and and all that shit that Mm. nobody else wanted to do. But it was absolutely essential for the audience who didn't have an internet and would devour it. Yeah. So, you know, I'd look at a, a magazine from about 1993 and I can I can just go, yeah, I wrote about 75% of that magazine. Yeah, yeah. That's what you want when you start as a writer. You want to fucking write. Yeah. That was the great thing. I mean, if there'd have been nothing to write about, I mean, I remember in 1986, there wasn't really much around to write about, I found at all, whatever. It was 87, though. It was really, really beginning to change in hip-hop, whatever. Everybody like, you know, your skinny boys, Eric B and Rakim, Public Enemy, all yeah. those kind of people coming through. And then this sort of underground of rock, whether it's UK or whether it's America, stuff coming in from Europe. I mean, it was, it, it you know, it couldn't invent all of that. It just ha- all mm. happened to be, you know, happening at the same time. It was a period of like... And know, it had to be explained, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it was a case of, that that was it. It was fastening onto that and like creating kind of sense of the zeitgeist around it. Yeah, yeah. Imposing a narrative almost on it in a sense, which sometimes the groups kind of rejected because, you know, it's just like it wasn't what they consider their own narrative, but they were a bunch of mumbling idiots anyway, you know, do I, do no. anybody else likes it? That's a bonus, really. <laughs> uh, you know, so I sometimes felt that, like, we had to kind of verbally, in a sense, make up and overcompensate almost for the inarticulacy of a lot of the people that we interviewed. So, what else was on telly this day? Well, BBC One starts the day at 6am with CFAX AM, followed by the 1938 short film Leon Errol and His Pest. Then it's breakfast time with Frank Boff, Sally Magnuson and Jeremy Paxman, followed by the TV discussion show Open Ear with Eamon Holmes. Then regional news in your area, Neighbours, Kilroy, Going for Gold, Play School with Floella Benjamin and Fred Harris, 5 to 11, the grown-up Jack and Ori with Martin Jarvis, then it's Open Ear again, then Daytime Live with Pamela Armstrong, Alan Titchmarsh and Judy Spires. After the one o'clock news, it's Neighbours, Going for Gold, and then part one of War and Peace, the 1956 King Vidor film starring Audrey Hepburn and Henry Fonda. Children's BBC kicks in at ten to four with Jimbo and the Jet Set, The Chucklehounds, Benja, Zax and the Alien Prince, Around the World with Willie Fogg, News Round, Blue Peter, Master Team 87, the quiz show hosted by Angela Rippon, the 6 o'clock news, and they've just finished regional news in your area. BBC Two commences at 9 with three and a half hours of pages from CFAX and then hits us with a double bill from the Open University. Then it's Bertha, a documentary about Edward Moybridge in the series Pioneers of Photography. Then it's the news, a repeat of Sports Personality of the Year 1987. Fatima Whitbed won it. Cameo, a short documentary about a bird refuge in California. Then the news, then It's My Pleasure, the clip show where Des Lynham invites someone to pick out their favourite televisual moments. Then it's the Modern Alarms Christmas Cracker Steaks from Olympia in International Show Jumping, a repeat of Floyd on Fish, Battlestar Galactica, and they're halfway through the book series Cover to Cover, where various authors pick out their favourite books of the year. ITV start at 6 with TVAM, followed by regional news in your area, then Runway, 
the air travel themed quiz show hosted by Chris Searle. Then it's Santa Barbara, the time, the place, Puddle Lane, more regional news in your area, look good, feel great. The Sullivans, the news, a country practice, even more regional news in your area. The game show Crosswits, hosted by Tom O'Connor. All Our Yesterdays, which looks at news clips from 1962. Short Story Theatre, The Young Doctors, The Telebugs, Chisham Phipps, the programme about two garden gnomes who live behind a chipper. Garfield, Blockbusters, The News at 5.45, Regional News in Your Area Once More, Crossroads, and they've just started Emmerdale Farm, where Joe Sugden receives devastating news as he's about to take part in the Beckendale Panto. Something about the bowel problems of the person in the cow suit in front of him, I suppose. Channel 4 opens up for business at noon with Business Daylight, then Just for Fun, Sesame Street, their Lordship's House, Channel 4's blow-by-blow coverage of the House of Lords, the 1957 Kenneth Moore film The Admirable Crichton, Round the Island, a 1950s British rail film about the Isle of Wight, Countdown, the 1938 Shirley Temple film Dimples, The Sharp End, and they've just finished Channel 4 News. Oh, all the Australian shit starting to pile in. Mm. But you still got show jumping and Frank Boff on the telly. It's still an age of innocence. Yeah, yeah. I think Sanyo Sound System's got a very good chance in that tournament this year. <laughs> uh, but also a lot of let the viewers have their say bits. Oh, that's where it started. Yeah, this then. is where it all started going wrong, didn't it? Mm. Let's not let them have their say. Like, we, yeah. we, are, we are telling you this yeah. from the future. It can only end in tears. So that's going to encourage them to start chatting about stuff. And I mean, the feedback says, no, stop chatting. We don't want your say. Just sit there passively. Mm. Listen. Yeah. Watch. Conform. Learn. Conform. Yeah. And that, me dears, lays the table for this episode of Top of the Pops. And, oh, we're going to tuck into a proper Beano-style slap-up feast of late 80s pop, aren't we, me dears? (laughs) Absolutely. We shall do that tomorrow. But until then, I'll say my name's Al Needham, their names are David Stubbs and Sarah B, and we'll see you very soon. (laughs) Chart music. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.